Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I think we have our friend Ed Luce back from some globe trotting. How are you doing, Ed? Doing well. Not not globe trotting, but doing well. Um, well, you know, you were out of our country. I haven't been out of the country in a long time, so it seems very appealing to me. Um, and joining us uh, is uh, an old friend and probably one of the handful of very best uh, scholars and thinkers on the Western Hemisphere, Shannon O'Neill, Vice President of the Council on Foreign Relations and a senior fellow there. How are you, Shannon? I'm great. Nice to see you, David. Nice to see you. <laughs> so I thought we would, uh, because there's a lot of news to discuss, talk about a part of the world we seldom discuss on our podcast, this hemisphere. We... <laughs> We, you know, which, by the way, is a, I, I think it's a it's a problem that uh, exists throughout the policy community, uh, except in Shannon's office and a few other <laughs> smart places. Um, and so I just thought I'll throw a question at, you know, each of you around a couple of breaking issues and uh, try to get some um, try to get some reactions. Let's start with Cuba. Um, we've got a lot of upheaval in Cuba, people uh, marching in the streets. Um, and in the United States, we've seen, you know, the usual panoply of political opportunists hopping on this. Um, uh, wh wh where does the situation stand now, Shannon? Is this a time where real change may be possible? You know, I do think real change may be possible. And the, the protests and the people coming out of the streets uh, have really been unprecedented or not for, for many decades where you've seen people come out for whole hosts of reasons. Some of them are just, you know, bread and butter issues, literally the, the lack of food, the lack of opportunity, the spread of COVID, sort of the destruction of the economy and, and opportunities that are there. But a lot of them have to do with just the desire for political freedoms. And you see that there's been one of the avant-garde sides have been a lot of artists coming out, rappers and, and other singers and the like with, with catchy songs, viral videos, uh, but pushing for freedom that has been denied for them for so long. So I think that is unprecedented. The other thing that has been really a shift was the leadership of Cuba came out when these protests started and called on support 
supporters of the of the government of the state to to step in and to fight back against this and pretty much nobody showed up and so they were forced to rely on the armed forces to come in and repress uh, these demonstrators that were out there started arresting a lot of them. But what was interesting is in the past, in the 1990s, when you'd seen movements like this, there were uh, there was an up there was an uprising, a momentum of people in Cuba that stepped in to support the state. And this time, it was it was absent. And so I think those are really different things, and perhaps open up space uh, for the end of of a long authoritarian regime um, that's looked so stable for so many decades. Uh, Ed, you know, it's a kind of have you been to Cuba? Ed? No, I haven't. Uh, sadly, I'd love to rectify that, but um, my um, th there's a reason why we haven't discussed this hemisphere that frequently when I've been on your podcast. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting about this uh, at the moment is um, the Obama administration was kind of forward leaning on Cuba, and they they um, wanted to end the embargo and sort of move on to a something revolutionary in U.S. Cuba policy, which is policy for the 21st century, since, you know, all the predecessors had been sort of mired in the policies of the 1960s. Um, Trump undid that because so much of his base was kind of, uh, you know, typically, you know, they hung up on the anti-communist sloganeering of the, of the Cold War era. Um, and Biden has been kind of slow to get back there, which has opened him up to some criticism from, you know, some former members of the Obama team that really felt like they owned that issue. Ben Rhodes comes to mind. Um, uh, what, 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 what do you think of this that, you know, is, is, is that kind of characteristic Biden and he'll get there sooner or later? Or, you know, what's your attitude? It's interesting, I, I literally just finished reading Ben Rhodes' latest book because I'm reviewing it for the FT after the fall. And he talks about that Cuba outreach and the relaxation um, that Obama undertook as one of the things he was proud of, another being the Iran nuclear deal, when so many other ideals were sort of uh, going by the wayside. These were two, two of the themes he was really enthusiastic on working, uh, in, in working on. Um, I think that America as a whole, but Biden in particular, should be a lot more self-confident um, about how to support these protests in Cuba and opening up of America to Cuba. Uh, Cuba is, you know, something, an island I don't know much about, but I know that it's not very far from Florida. I know that it's a small island with not a huge population relative to this superpower that we live in, and that... America has been far too brittle for far too many decades about opening up to Cuba. And partly that's because of the Cuban vote in Florida and the fact that Florida is a swing state. I think, you know, it's safe to say you can write off Florida to the Trump column for the time being and take whatever risks you like. So I would like to see Biden um, pick up where undo Trump's undoing of what Obama did and take it um, many steps forward. I'm, I'm sure Shannon will have a far more nuanced and um, and a propos uh, sort of diagnosis of the exact things Biden should do, but the general direction um, should be Obama plus. Is that true, Shannon? Do you have a more nuanced analysis? Than that? <laughs> I don't know about that. I thought that was a good analysis, okay. but 
You know, I would say the challenge Biden has right now, though, is it's very hard in the face of state repression to then open up, right? And, and if you look around the world at the way we treat various regimes that treat their populations poorly or put in authoritarian measures or crack down, it's very hard then to say, let's open up the economy and embrace you in an economic way. So I think the politics of this, whatever, despite what's happening in South Florida, which obviously, which, which Ed lays out very clearly is, is, a, is a tough element for a democratic administration. Despite even that, it's very hard to the, go and embrace a regime that's that's right now repressing its people. Let me ask you a follow-up question, Shannon, and then I'll go back to, to um, Ed. What, what, what do you prescribe? I mean, I hear so many different kinds of reactions. You know, there's, you know, there's always a reaction in somewhere in Washington when something happens where there's a little people like we should get involved in some way. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Haiti in a second. And there was, you know, the same kind of thing. Would we if it were Trinidad and Tobago, which has roughly the same geopolitical significance? We wouldn't, right? Or the Dominican Republic, would we? <laughs> right. These are I mean, these are questions. There's a obviously a long-standing relationship with Cuba and it it, it punches much bigger than its weight in terms of, of size and, and influence in international affairs for, for decades, frankly, um, as we've seen. You know, what the what can the United States do too, right? We are not going to intervene. We're right now pulling out of Afghanistan. We're not going to intervene and, and enter another country in a, you know, a, a decades-long war or a decades-long occupation. Uh, so I think that is off the table in any of these places. There are things we could do, right? We could try to help increase access to information. Um, you know, authoritarian regimes around the world, including Cuba, shut down the internet when uh, when they're faced with demonstrations, is there something we could do, especially given proximity? It's only 90 miles away and in, in parts of it. Um, could we make sure that there was access to internet? Are there things like that that we could do? I think that's important. What the United States should be preparing for, and this sort of leads into your Haiti question, but which we can sideline for a second, is, um, is be ready for increased migration to the United States. And that is a policy area that we definitely need to prepare for, both from Cuba as well as from Haiti. Yeah, it seems, Ed, we are completely ill-prepared for that, um, uh, whether it's Haiti or Cuba or anywhere else. This administration is sort of slowly, and and I think doing most of the right things, trying to fix where we are on uh, immigration policy, but it's been quite cautious on that front, not wanting to move too fast. Um, seems like this is a perennial issue. Um, do, 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 do you feel like the administration's getting their arms around it finally with the more active involvement of the vice president? Um, I mean, they're, they're going to have to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm awaiting your question about Anguilla, St. Lucia, and the Bahamas, because I, I have some on-the-ground knowledge of those wonderful vacation spots. But the Haiti thing, I, you know, I understand why there wasn't the bandwidth in the first five and a half months for the Biden administration to, to have got their arms around it, even though there were warning signs. And I know Shannon's acutely aware of them uh, and other specialists have been acutely aware of them. Um, but given the fact that there's so much on Biden's plate, given the fact he doesn't have that many people in place for which he might partly be to blame, there is an incredible slowness, even by normal administration standards, to getting people into the second and third tier positions and into ambassadorial ones. 
Um, given all that, I'd give him some, I'd cut him some slack for being caught unawares um, by this crisis. I would also, I would also have some understanding of the fear of a repetition of the, the early 90s, you know, with a much worse political environment here in the United States, um, given what Trump has said about um, Haiti um, and what the Trump world thinks of it, that um, that could make Kamala Harris's job of dealing with the Northern Triangle and the US-Mexico border even more impossible than it already is to have, you know, streams of people coming from Haiti into the United States. Nevertheless, you, he asked to be president. When you're president, you deal with the problems in front of you. And this is a major problem. Um, what I can't, partly because of my own lack of knowledge, but I think partly also because of the short-term insolubility of failed states like Haiti, what I can't do is recommend a sort of menu of actions. I'm hoping Shannon will have those because this is a very, very difficult problem. Yeah, Shannon, I, I want to turn to you for those. I, I do want to comment that whenever Ed says, I don't really understand a situation, then follows, you know, as good an analysis as you're going to get from anybody else, which is a remarkable skill set, um, Ed. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're being far too generous. I, that's really, the, I've given you the best I've got. And I was actually reading it off an autocue. We supplied teleprompters with this <laughs> podcast. But um, uh, Shannon, um, I, you know, I was kind of horrified when people started saying, well, we should get involved in Haiti. I was there. I have scars. I was the Haiti economic policy coordinator for the Clinton administration because at some interagency meeting, I made the mistake of saying we should coordinate our policy. And literally two days later, I read in the Washington Post, the White House has appointed David Rothkopf as Haiti economic policy coordinator. And the secretary of, Com of commerce at the time, Ron Brown, called me up and he's like, what's this? And I was like, I don't know. I had not, you know, I just said something in a meeting, but anyway, I had to go there. And, you know, there is no way the United States will ever get as involved as we got back then. And we did no good. Then the world got involved after the earthquake and did very little good there. It's, it's very hard to think of something that we can do other than, you know, sort of basic humanitarian steps that's going to have a positive effect. Do you, do you have a thought on what it might be? I mean, it's as you as you described, right? And your PTSD from that time. If, if someone goes into that role again, they'll have a perhaps, um, but likely a similar experience. You know, the humanitarian stuff is is not nothing, right? Helping there are people there. There's a huge amount of challenges there. Haiti is just getting its first doses of a COVID vaccine uh, to the island in general. There's all kinds of things that the that the United States and other countries can do to alleviate the day to day suffering of people there. Uh, on the political side, uh, there have been sort of, you know, groups of ambassadors who've come together and tried to keep down uh, the anarchy, frankly, and some of the violence, try to help navigate it so that there can be elections this fall, which were scheduled for this fall and sort of move forward. So there's some sort of political system rather than it all disintegrating. You know, that is something, at least sort of a multilateral push um, of persuasion um, rather than perhaps intervention. And I think that is, is useful. 
Um, before this happened, uh, the U.S. did allow uh, the sort of a visa category for Haitians, what's called you know temporary protected status (TPS), allowed some Haitians to stay here. And I think that is something that the United States can do is is have that category and allow those people one to stay here and not going back to the situation that's quite difficult. But also, often those are people who would send money back that they earn here in remittances to family or there, so it takes some of the edge off of sort of the the economic devastation. But you know. One of the things I think we learned as a superpower, and perhaps we're no longer a superpower, there's all these you know debates out there and, and angst about it, is that you can't really fix things. And particularly a place as naughty and difficult as Haiti is politically, economically, and, and the like, as you saw in the 1990s, those challenges really haven't changed. And so I would caution the Biden administration from jumping too headlong. And we all have a desire to do something and make things better, but I'm not sure that there is an easy set of policies. Those policies that Ed wants to take off the, you know, bring out the list. I don't have the auto cue here, David. Like there is not a lot that one can do to, to fix this in, in the short term. So I think it's these little, you know, types of policies or policies that can alleviate some of the suffering is the place to start for the U.S. And, and other donors that might be around. Well, there is one suggestion I have, and that is move away from the thought that it's the United States' sole responsibility yeah. and actually take some steps to restore multilateralism in this hemisphere, right? I mean, that's possible. It seems implausible since we haven't done it in a long time, but <laughs> but it's possible, right, to you know get the U.N., get the OAS, get the IADB, you know, involved. I think that is possible. And, and we've seen that around the world, but I do think that is a hallmark of the Biden administration. It's as they set forward, you know, technology policies and industrial policies and economic policies, this multilateral approach is, is back on the table. And the same should be for what we're gonna do in the Western hemisphere. So whether that's Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela, Central America, I think there's a lot of places where that can be a much more effective approach. All right. So let me pull the focus back a little bit to something where, you know, Ed's going to feel more comfortable and then we'll zoom back in on it, on the, on the hemispheric implications, Shannon. But, uh, you know, Ed, uh, you, you know, you just returned from, you know, third world country in terms of its treatment of the COVID crisis. Um, congratulations. This is Freedom Day in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm told they, they've, at the day we're recording this, Monday, um, they've lifted all restrictions, even as your prime minister, who I know is a personal hero of yours, is gone into isolation because his health minister, you know, is carrying COVID or something. But this is turning into a, a this is a new wave, a third wave here. It's turning into a real thing, real problem. Re you know, in Japan with the Olympics, uh, we'll talk about what's going on in the Americas. Uh, uh, you know, across Europe, I looked at a map yesterday. Almost every state is seeing very rapidly rising rates of COVID infections. Um, do, you, do you think that another smack in the face from this thing is coming for the world for the Biden administration? Uh, it's a very vexing question. I was in the UK for a couple of weeks as we were talking about before the show, visiting my uh, parents in the countryside in England. Um, and whilst I was there, I had to quarantine for the first few days, but whilst I was there, you know, I spoke to a lot of people and then subsequently saw a lot of people. I know personally of several people 
who've been double vaccinated months ago, who've been infected with COVID, um, with the um, with the Delta variant. Um, uh, now they're not being hospitalised, and maybe they would have been if they had caught it before being vaccinated. But uh, the, the the virus is breaking through double vaccinated, double Pfizer, double Moderna, double AstraZeneca vaccinated people. And that is a great opportunity for a virus because it then learns how to break through the defensive and adapts and mutates more quickly. So the idea of the double vaccination, which is what Boris Johnson is premising this bonfire of regulations on, this freedom day on, the idea that double vaccination is it, it's all over, the pandemic's at an end, is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. What happens from today is we've gone from a very strict lockdown situation in Britain, you know, micro-fascism at sort of some level, um, where, you know, people are policed to a degree they're not used to being policed, into basically a NASCAR rally with nothing in between. It's either hyper-strict um, or it's free-for-all. And so you can, as of tonight, um, even if you're unvaccinated, go without a mask into a nightclub. Uh, now, this is in the context of um, the infection rate in Britain having risen to 50,000 a day from a tenth that level six weeks ago and forecast to rise up to 100,000 a day within the next two or three weeks, which is the peak level of infections Britain had at the worst stages of the pandemic. Lower rates of hospitalization, um, to be sure, but massive petri dish opportunities for a virus when it is simply unnecessary to, to offer uh, the virus these opportunities. Boris Johnson is a fundamentally unserious person. Um, you know, you can debate what his ideology is or his level of narcissism, but there's no debate. The man is frivolous, pyromaniac, reckless, and potentially um, endangering Britain's neighbours and everyone else around the world. This is, this is a, a, a dispiritingly bad move and it's totally unnecessary. So Shannon, um, the UK does not have the market cornered on terrible leaders, um, uh, as we have proven here in the United States. Um, but I would say when the final history of COVID is written, two of the worst are going to be um, AMLO in Mexico and, and even worse, Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, where the, you know, the, these, these crises are in flames now, have caused vastly more death, suffering, and damage than either government has reported, and has essentially got Latin America flirting with another kind of lost decade um, because the recovery for the rest of the world is gonna move at different speeds, but there's nothing to indicate that it's gonna move more quickly in Latin America than anywhere else. And plenty to indicate it may move more slowly. What's your take on the kind of macro macro uh, response of the region to COVID? 
It is, uh, to steal Ed's word, it's dispiriting. Uh, we have seen, you know, we're talking here in the story with the UK or the US about another wave happening. And the first wave hasn't ended in Latin America, where you have nations where the caseload really hasn't gone on. You've seen more deaths in the region than almost anywhere else. There's only a couple countries around the world that surpass Brazil and Mexico and others in absolute numbers, but in, and even fewer in sort of relative numbers. So this is an area that's still in crisis. And the spread of the vaccine, Argentina, places like that, less than 10% of the population has been vaccinated and they're having a hard time getting the vaccine. So I think the, the challenge is here that the economic crisis, the pandemic shutdown uh, has continued in many of these places. And, and while you'll see some pickup in South America because commodities are coming back, because China and other places are coming back, that's a shallow recovery and a very little, in a very uneven one in many ways. And, and not one that you would want to bet your, you know, your future growth and prosperity and the rise of your middle class upon, because it's, it's a very different, a commodity boom, boom is happening, but that's not uh, affecting the rest of, of the nation. One of the other big, you know, to add to the dispiriting story here is that Latin American young people are pretty much still out of school. So we now have almost 18 months where most of the children have not gone into a classroom and the you know, ability to be to work virtually to set up schools in that sense has not been as strong as it has in the United States and other places where we see lots of problems as well. So you have a whole potential talking about the last decade, you have a whole potential lost generation who may never go back to school or when they do get back there will be a couple of years behind and, and not ready for, you know, the future of work and the way the world is transforming overall in terms of jobs and things in the future. So, so what does that mean? You know, there are, you do see some growth in uh, particularly South America as the rest of the world comes back, there's demand for the commodities that they produce. Uh, you see Mexico, despite the, the treatment of AMLO and the challenges that he poses for the business community and the like, you see as the United States grows and hits these record high levels and its rebound, it pulls Mexico along. So you're gonna see some growth. Uh, this year and the like, but these longer term structural factors, you know, the loss of businesses, the loss of manufacturing, the loss of a diversified economy that some of these nations were starting to put together. And frankly, the loss of trust in governments to handle, to do the things governments are supposed to do, like keep people safe and keep them healthy has been lost. So I do worry about, uh, about what happens in Latin America. And, you know, the one maybe silver lining is, as you said, at the start of this, the populist presidents, Jair Bolsonaro and AMLO in Mexico perform terribly. They have some of the worst records. Uh, so perhaps often you vote when you're upset with your government, you vote anti-incumbent, you voted, you know, vote people out and look for somebody else. So there's a possibility that maybe you get better leadership on the other side. There's also a possibility that you just get somebody on the other side who's just as populist, just as, as sort of inflammatory and extravagant as some of these leaders have been. But I think that is the real question as you go forward. Can you find centrist, pragmatist, institution builders, those that actually would try to solve the problems that these nations face. Yeah, there's an interesting subtext in all of this, uh, Ed. Um, the, one of the principal you know, potential competitors for Bolsonaro is Lula. And um, uh, he's sort of gotten out of the legal perda that he was in and he's doing pretty well in the polls. But interestingly, financial markets are like, okay with it. Um, they, they used to be scared of Lula, but in the wake of Bolsonaro, they're not as scared. Um, and, you know, I wonder, 
you know, as you look at that, you look at what's happening in the United States, if 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 we might be on the verge of, um, you know, in 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 some major countries seeing people go for activist government again. Uh, that might be part of it. Um, you know, I think Lula Lula is probably considered to be. Um, less of a, um, a frightening prospect because they've already seen him in office and in spite of the corruption, you know, he was more a social Democrat than a Maduro Chavista kind of figure. And he was probably, and Shannon might correct me here, he was probably more effective than AMLO has been in terms of his social democracy. He actually did intervene with these cash schemes um, for the poor quite effectively in terms of reducing poverty in the favelas, etc. But I, I don't want to speak too much about Brazil because I don't know it. Um, the financial markets are um, propped up and sort of Panglossian all over the world because of the stance of the Fed and the European Central Bank and other central banks um, uh, of you know, underwriting basically as far as the eye can see um, more quantitative easing, or at least not withdrawing quantitative easing anytime in the near future. And that makes sort of all risks acceptable. Um, it just sort of gives us a sort of happy, clappy tone to the markets that it would take an enormous exogenous shock to shift. So I think there's arguably a lot of mispricing going on here, uh, not because inflation's on the horizon, I don't think it is, um, but because there are all kinds of other troubling trends that will affect the market valuations that we've got at the moment. And one of them, of course, is COVID, is the fact that the world is not being, is not being um, vaccinated at nearly the rate that um, it could be being vaccinated. And therefore, the return to global growth um, is not as fast as, um, is not going to be nearly as fast as it could be. So I think, you know, that's, that's the thing that the markets are missing and central banks are encouraging them to miss that. Um, Shannon, what, what, what do you think about this uh, sort of comfort with Lula returning? Is it that people remember, uh, as Ed was suggesting, kind of good Lula, the years that went pretty well uh, and are setting aside his pure problems with corruption because some of them were politically motivated and, you know, Bolsonaro has proven to be every bit as corrupt as Lula, or, you know, is there something else bigger afoot here in the region because the region has gone through this shocking period as a result of COVID? I mean, Brazilians really focus on Brazil. They're not particularly outward looking. So they're really thinking about their own politics. And, and I think that's right. You know, the, the Lula of 1980 or 85 or 90, that, that's a different Lula. And when he came into power in 2000, he was elected and he supported basically free markets. He allowed companies to operate. He, you know, there are lots of within his government that took some on the side. And, you know, there was even a scandal that they called the monthly payment because it really was. So you had some of those things. But overall, it was a time that Brazilians remember of great prosperity. Um, it coincided with a commodity boom. So we had a lot of money to, to work with. It was a time when 40, almost 50 million Brazilians came out of the lower class and moved into sort of a broad middle class. Um, you know, they bought their first cars and TVs. So they really remember it fondly. And they, you know, now we're in the situation today where the economy has fallen. 
people are dying of COVID. The government seems a bit in a, in a disaster. Corruption is just as bad as, as it was before and involves the president's, allegedly involves the president's family among many others. And so I think there's a nostalgia for what we're seeing as, as good times uh, for Lulo. And there is a huge base in Brazil. If you look at the Brazilian population and polls and the like, it usually leans center left in terms of the kinds of things it wants, the sort of social democratic norms that it wants. So Bolsonaro was a little bit of a, you know, he was an outsider, definitely portrayed himself as an outsider, even though he'd been in Congress for 27 years before he was elected president. Um, but he was, you know, he's on the right, he's very socially conservative, he appealed to farmers and others and in, in sort of the, the agricultural states, that is his base. So I think it's, it's a bit of a pendulum in terms of what voters want and Lula has taken that mantle. And the challenge I think here is, is the only options I see for the year to come in the elections are Bolsonaro and Lula, assuming the two of them uh, health-wise and everything else are, are, are running for the election because there just isn't any political oxygen right, for should, a third should, candidate. No, so it's be, well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no political oxygen is is an uncomfortable metaphor, but um, yes. <laughs> uh, but we should note for those who are not following this closely that Bolsonaro has been in the hospital for the past few days. Yeah, right? he has been. Yeah, he was. It seems, um, though it's unclear exactly what happened, but it seems there may be complications. When he was campaigning for president, he was there was actually an assassination attempt. Someone. Uh, with a knife um, stabbed him. And so it may be complications from, from some of the, the wounds that he suffered at the time or, or something else that's happening. Um, Ed, I'm sure you, you followed the, the world's biggest soccer game um, uh, recently uh, between Argentina and Brazil. There was another one. I don't remember who was in the other one. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, stuck. I'm almost there. It's at the tip of my tongue. Uh, it was either Scotland or Wales uh, against Italy in the final. No, it was England, actually. So now it's come back. It's come flooding back to me. It was a repressed memory. And you've unlocked it, David. Yeah. Did you watch it, Ed? I did. And I was um, flanked by a screaming 14-year-old um, daughter and a screaming uh, older brother. My parents had no interest whatsoever in it. But I was in England. And... Um, I, I find the, I have cognitive dissonance for these kinds of games, or I say these kinds of games, it's the first time in my lifetime England have reached the final of a major competition. Um, but for big games for England, um, I find myself struggling between a real dislike of the sort of almost Nuremberg style nationalism that comes with English soccer. Um, and a desperate yearning for England not to fuck up on penalties. Um, and uh, unfortunately they did fuck up on penalties, um, but the sort of uglier side of English nationalism came out because of the three young players, all of whom were non-white, who were unfortunate enough to be asked to take penalties. And then there was a really vicious, and highly predictable social media response from right-wing trolls blaming their skin color for lack of loyalty. I mean, all the sort of crap, um, but quite a heartening, pretty much across the board consensus condemnation of them, including um, Tail Between His Legs by Boris Johnson. And I say Tail Between His Legs because he had criticized the England team for taking the knee. And the England team took the knee before every game. And he had justified some of the more nationalistic sections of the English 
fan um, of, of England fans for booing the taking of the knee. And by the end of it, by the end of the tournament, everybody was behind the taking of the knee. And the response to the penalties, the racial response to that penalty shoot shootout, um, I think told us more eloquently than any, any number of words why taking the knee is necessary in England as well as in the United States. So I sort of emerge from this with mixed feelings. Um, I really don't care whether England win competitions or not, except when I'm watching them. Um, but there was one person who tweeted, look, the English didn't want Brexit. They wanted to win a football tournament. And there's some truth in that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some truth in it. You know, these things carry a lot of weight. And um, Shannon, I'm sure you're wondering, like, where's he going to go with this with Latin America? I, you know, to, to, to some it's extent, football, it's definitely it's the heart of Latin America. Come on. It, it is. I was trying to explain to some folks on a podcast last week what the soccer war was. You know, they, they none of them knew of this great um, moment in the history of Central America. But, um, you know, when you look at Latin America and you look at the next couple of years, you know, there are two things that seem to offer promise. Um, one is that the World Cup is going to happen in the end of 2022. And once again, Brazil and Argentina and perhaps, you know, a couple other teams are going to be in the middle of it. And that's going to give people some hope. And that's not to be minimized because, you know, the I've, I've followed the, 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 the last tournament, the most recent one, and it was giving some people some hope. But in a more serious vein, and you can comment on either if you like, I noticed that you tweeted out something that I tweeted out the other day, which was a chart that showed the number of countries with whom the US and China were the number one trading partners. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't remember when the, the date of the first chart was, but, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and the U.S. was the dominant one, and China was clearly secondary. And then you look at the chart now, and I would say 75 or 80 percent of the world, it's China is the principal trading partner. And that's true in Latin America as well. Latin America, China is the principal trading partner. It's the number one investment partner. And we're asking a lot of questions about what U.S. policy are towards Latin America. But China is going to lead the recovery. They're the ones going to buy the products. They're the ones who are going to shape the future for the region. Um, I mean, do, do you accept that? And, and if so, um, does that hold promise or do you think it holds peril for the region? You know, yeah, that, that chart was fascinating and it was from The Economist and, and, and sort of you see in, in color, you see two maps of, of who's the biggest trading partner and, and China taking over so many countries. You know, I think it is in many ways a double-edged sword for the region. And so, yes, the only way or many of these countries, the way that they're going to grow out of this, what's going to boost their economies is demand from China, demand for copper and iron ore and soy and beef and all kinds of other commodities and goods that, that Latin American countries are producing. So I do think that will, that pull will be important, particularly in South America. Mexico will be more tied to the United States, but South America, that will be the focus. Um, but it is a double-edged sword because what China wants then is to send back many of those finished goods, those higher value goods, 
back to Latin American countries. And so, you know, the economist Danny Roderick has been doing a lot about what he calls premature and deindustrialization. So countries that are middle income countries that are sort of rising up the socioeconomic and technological ladder stop too soon. Um, they're no longer manufacturing. Those sectors are disappearing and that the path that so many countries, including the United States or, or the UK or others have followed is, is cut off for them. And Latin America is one of the worst in terms of this deindustrialization that's happening. And, you know, in large part, I think that is the relationship with China. Uh, they're not close enough to China the way South Korea or Malaysia and Indonesia is to hook into Chinese supply chains where it's supplying the country. Instead, they're only supplying raw materials that then come back to them as finished goods in ways that undercut their own particular uh, manufacturing. So yes, China's gonna save them now and China's gonna be the big investor as well. Uh, you know, Latin American countries need a couple trillion dollars worth of money for investment, for, for infrastructure, for these kinds of things to upgrade their economies if they're going to grow and succeed. And China is so far been uh, the, you know, had, had the bank, had the, had the, you know, the wallet open for, for these nations uh, when others have not around the world. So I do think there's a lot that China brings to the region um, that has benefited them. But as you look at the longer term structures of these economies and their desire to create more value, to, to have higher paying jobs, to kind of, you know, grow and become um, more, to become wealthier, uh, China also is an impediment in many ways to, to that vision for the future. Yeah, no, I, I think there's no question about it. And there's no downplaying the influence that that kind of trade volume or investment volume buys. Going again, back in my post-traumatic stress, you know, in the early 90s, I was actively promoting the idea of commercial diplomacy. Joe Nye in the beginning of the decade wrote about soft power. And what he was writing about was not the internet. It was economic influence and and how powerful that is and the chinese really are going to play a much much bigger role in this hemisphere than i think anybody is prepared for in 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 the u.s foreign policy establishment um I, if you'll permit me shannon for the final two minutes here three minutes of this podcast i would like to turn to ed and talk about something slightly off the point although it's well within this hemisphere and that is, Ed, that I, I really enjoyed the uh, uh, lunch with the FT that you did with Heather Cox Richardson in Maine, which is in the Western Hemisphere, um, where you, you, you had a lobster roll and you listened to her. And I think she's just a terrific commentator. She's got her own good podcast. She's been on ours. And I just thought, Give, 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 give the listeners a little taste of it so they can go and uh, look it up if they haven't already. Uh, well, th thanks. Thank you for um, mentioning that, um, David. Yeah, I went to, she lives in, in Maine, um, um, teaches at Boston College and before the pandemic commuted there. Um, and since the pandemic has been teaching from home, but had begun this thing called Letter from an American on Facebook, posting it for free. Every night, she would write um, this missive on what, a, what had happened that day and would bring in a lot of historical allusions, particularly New England ones, but more generally, um, in a way that you, know, you don't get from, from professional media. It's written more like you know, a friend or an aunt would write it. And I think that appeals, appeals to a lot of people 
who um, you know are alienated from the mainstream media in one way or another. Um, and it quickly grew to, I think she's now got 1.4 million Facebook friends. Um, and then Substack, uh, which of course is this newish media platform where you can charge monthly fees. And she is the most successful Substacker. She gets more than a million dollars a year. She charges $5 a month for the privilege of commenting. I'm sorry, that's the end of this podcast. I have something <laughs> I've got to go do. I've got to go do right away. What what am, what am I thinking? Go on. It is kind of a, 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 extraordinary because there are no overheads, right? I mean, it's, well, I mean, I'm sure you'd do it if the FT didn't pay you millions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just drowning in, in money. I mean, the FT is just their their munificence is yeah. legendary. Um, no, I mean, I, I hear stories like this, and she's a delightful and charming. I think. I think you've had her on Deep State Radio once or twice. Um, so as you know very well, she's a delightful, uh, charming, and also very sharp and very knowledgeable observer of um, this alarming period we're living through. And I think people sort of digest that alarmingness with her reassurance in a way others don't do. So I found it great to eat uh, a lobster roll with her and drink a glass of wine on a on a sunny day in Maine, which I never need any. But she didn't have lobster, did she? No, she had had a, a Reuben Haddock sandwich and a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Nice. Which yeah. went warm in the sun. <laughs> Those were the details we wanted. Those were the details we wanted. Um, warm wine with Ed Luce will be our next podcast. Um, uh, uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Ed, for that. And thank you, Shannon, so much. I hope you'll come back again. Uh, we Love regularly you. get um, uh, um, criticized from, from our listeners for not covering the hemisphere more. And I can't think of a better way to cover it than to talk to you about it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to know more about what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Um, and since we're not, you know, like on Substack at the moment, go to where it says membership and, you know, at least support this, this, the world's smallest media company here, the DSR network, so that we can, uh, send, you know, Ed and, and other guests box, box wine or whatever it is we can afford. Um, uh, in the, in the meantime, stay healthy. It's not, not, not time to get casual about about your health out there. So stay healthy out there. Uh, and we'll be back again with you um, real soon. In fact, I think this Thursday, we're going to do an all COVID broadcast and, and our friend and a popular guest, Lori Garrett's going to come back and uh, probably scare the shit out of you um, as she always does. So don't miss that. Uh, uh, enjoy your summers, everybody. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye.